Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll take a tour of the historic Florida State Capitol Museum and talk with Bruce Mathers, the man who saved the building from demolition. As Secretary of State, I was a constitutional officer, and to demonstrate the safety of it, I kept my officers in the old historic Capitol building. We'll look at Florida's Cold War era plans for dealing with a nuclear attack. Realistically, we know that there would be a good number that would die, and we would have to take care of burying them. And we'll discuss naturalist John James Audubon in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On June 25, 1845, a band played Hail Columbia, cannons were fired, and William Dunn Mosley was sworn in as the first governor of the state of Florida. The gathering in Tallahassee celebrated the fact that Florida had just been named a state and that the new Capitol building had been completed. More than 130 years later, as a new Capitol building was being constructed, Florida's historic state capitol was threatened with demolition. Then-Secretary of State Bruce Smathers led the effort to save the historic Capitol building. Smathers explains why our state Capitol is in Tallahassee, far away from most Floridians. It's actually a factor of history and population. Uh, when Florida first became a United States territory in 1821, it was composed of two Spanish colonial territories, East Florida, which, whose capital was in St. Augustine, and West Florida, whose capital was in Pensacola. And in order to create a unified territory, after trying to rotate the uh, territorial legislature between these two east and west Florida capitals, and they had to basically sail around the peninsula of Florida. Uh, one, one time, the Pensacola delegation almost foundered and was lost trying to sail from Pensacola to St. Augustine around the Florida Keys. So uh, one of the first acts in 1823 was that they designated a central location uh, for the new state capital, approximately halfway between Pensacola and St. Augustine. And that location, of course, was Tallahassee. After Florida was named a United States Territory in 1821 and Tallahassee selected as its capital, in 1824 a capital building was started but never completed as designed. It was torn down in 1839 and the original state capital building was constructed in 1845 just in time for Florida's official statehood. It's basically just a square rectangular two-story building with Doric columns on both sides, uh, one facing the Doric column entrance is facing east, toward St. Augustine, and the western side faces toward the old capital in Pensacola. And it was a brick building, uh, and it became effective upon statehood in 1845, and actually 
was the state capital until 1902. Following the Civil War and moving into the 20th century, the possibility of moving Florida's capital to a more central location was discussed. The old state capital basically lasted for some 55 years. And at statehood, Florida had less than 60,000 people, of which 40% were, were African slaves because it was antebellum. Uh, by 1900, uh, we had moved up to approximately 10 times that over 580,000 people, and the state had really begun to expand. Flagler had moved his railroad to Miami, past Palm Beach, and Tampa had already, was of course a bustling port as well as Jacksonville. And so there was a, a decision that we ought to really, we had to expand the state capitol building because the population had increased 10 times. And should we move it to some more centrally located spot? At that point, the centrally located spots were Ocala and Jacksonville. That were the only considerations. And the majority of the population was located around Tallahassee in that stretch, and they voted to keep it in Tallahassee. That was in the turn of the last century. On November 6, 1900, Florida voters decided to keep the state capital in Tallahassee. Legislators decided to expand and renovate the 1845 Capitol building. Architect Frank Pierce Milburn was selected to remodel the building, and he added a classical dome to it. Bruce Mathers. In 1902, they moved away from the rectangular building. They just expanded the capital based upon the original capital, but they added a very impressive dome, and they took the Dory Columns to maintain that and expanded it both to the north and the south with new legislative chambers. Fascinatingly, the 1902 Capitol building was the last time that all of Florida's state government, both executive, legislative, and judicial, the Supreme Court, were all housed under one roof, the 1902 Capitol building roof. And it was state, state government was so small, they actually had to, to lease out some of the basement floors to private parties to fill the building up. That situation changed, though, as Florida experienced a land boom in the early 20th century and the state's population swelled. In 1923, architect Henry J. Clutho nearly doubled the size of the state capitol building. So they began to design a new capitol building, which was finished in 1923, which was actually taking the old capitol building and adding an east and west wing, creating a familiar cross pattern with the dome in the center. And then that didn't last more than about... 15 years when they had to design another new capital building because Florida's population and government were growing so rapidly. In 1978, the Florida legislature moved into a brand new 22-story state capital building. When Bruce Mathers was elected Secretary of State in 1974, there was an ongoing effort to tear down the historic state capital. The effort to tear down the historic capital building was really based upon trying to justify building a brand new state capital building and that was really the idea of the Northwest or the Northern Florida legislative delegation, the pork choppers who controlled the legislature and had controlled the legislature all throughout Florida's history up to that time. Uh, in the 1960s, the Supreme Court ruled a one-man, one-vote for both legislative chambers, where previously each one of 67 uh, Florida counties, no matter how small or unpopulated, each had at least one state representative for each county. This allowed the rural counties to dominate. In fact, Florida was the most um, misrepresented uh, state legislature in the country. 14% of the legislature base of the population of Florida voted in, to elect the controlling majority 
of the state legislature in the House. Smathers says that with the North Florida delegation in control of the legislature, one reason that enthusiasm was strong for a big new Capitol building was that its construction would ensure the state Capitol would remain in Tallahassee. Politicians can't say we need more government space because government is growing. And the Northern, North Florida pork choppers couldn't say we want to create a new state Capitol building in Tallahassee. So the efforts to move the state Capitol down to Orlando or Central Florida, which was not only from the Central Florida delegation, but also from the South Florida delegation who didn't like to travel all the way to Tallahassee. Interestingly, Tallahassee is 200 miles closer to Atlanta, Georgia than it is to Miami, Florida. And so it was logical at some point we should consider this. Well, the old Capitol building um, was basically not sufficient sized for all of the new state legislative functions. And in the new 1968 Constitution, um, which approved one man, one vote for both legislative chambers, this would have suddenly taken the power away from the pork choppers in North Florida, and then the Central Florida and South Florida delegations could have voted to move the Capitol. They knew that if they built a brand new state Capitol building in Tallahassee, that the state Capitol would remain in Tallahassee into the 21st century. Smather says there were powerful people behind the effort to tear down the historic state Capitol. As Secretary of State, though, Smather successfully led the effort to preserve the building. First, there had been a movement to save the historic Capitol building, but as you stated, the legislative powers and even the press in Florida all believed the argument that the historic building was unsafe. This was the justification to put the new Capitol building up. Uh, the pork choppers couldn't say, I want the new Capitol building in Tallahassee because we want to save all the state jobs that state government represents. And they could... They couldn't say we need to build more building because state government is, is really outgrown the present facilities. So the justification was that the old historic Capitol building was structurally unsound and a fire hazard and it was endangering not only the legislators and the governor and the executive branch and those who work in the Capitol building but also the visitors. So they put it as a, a structural problem of the historic Capitol building which actually did not exist. We were successful by first doing several things. We changed the tone of the debate. Everybody was talking about tearing down the old Capitol building. We changed it. We want to save the historic Capitol building because literally the state Capitol building is the most historic structure, historically important structure in Florida since Spanish colonial days. It has encompassed our entire history from territorial days all the way up to the present, landing a man on the moon, in Disney World. So uh, the destruction of this building would have been an irreparable loss to the state of Florida. To prove that the historic state capitol building was, in fact, still quite safe, Bruce Mathers chose to stay in the building even after the new capitol was completed. In 1978, at the end of my term, uh, the new capitol building was completed and all of government the legislature had already moved its offices into the new capital structure, but the whole state government moved, including the executive branch. As Secretary of State, I was a constitutional officer, and to demonstrate the safety of it, I kept my offices in the old historic Capitol building. And we remained there um, until basically um, we had won the battle. Herschel Lee Shepard of Shepard Associates Architects and Planners of Jacksonville led the restoration effort to return the state capitol to its 1902 appearance. The historic capitol building is now a museum preserving Florida's history as a state with exhibits and artifacts.
Michelle Gammon Purvis is staff director and curator for the Florida Historic Capitol Museum. As you enter the doors, you enter into um, a rotunda, and you look up and you see a beautiful art glass dome. It's actually a sub dome, and it was added when um, the the dome was put on in 1902. That was the first major expansion of the Capitol. There had been some minor changes between 1845 and 1902, and um, Wings for the House and Senate chambers were added to the north and south ends of the building as well as the dome. That was what finally brought Florida's capital to kind of the image that you typically imagine for a government building, a building of some stature for that's, re, that's fitting of um, the representation of the people and the government of the state. And um, if you look around the, the rotunda, you see wood wainscoting, you see um, a very unique linoleum floor, and that is a historic material. The, it's a reproduction, but um, at the time that they did the expansion in 1902, they wanted top-of-the-line material and battleship linoleum was very popular in government buildings at the time. Uh, you look up at the chandeliers and you will see two different types of um, light fixtures on, in one chandelier and that's because in 1902 uh, electricity was just coming to Tallahassee and they had uh, gas lamps as well as electricity and when when the power plant was generating electricity they were able to have it on but it was only a few hours a day initially so they had to have the backup of the gas lamps. Um, the, it, is not currently gas, of course, but uh, they are used as our generator lamps. All three branches of government are represented in the historic State Capitol Museum. Exhibits from the executive branch include the actual boots worn by former Governor Lawton Childs on his walk across the state, as well as various buttons, bumper stickers, and other campaign materials from many Florida governors. Michelle Gammon Purvis. We are in the governor's office and his suite of three offices, actually, and that's all that composed of the governor's office in 1902. Governor Jennings um, had his original debt. We have his original desk that was actually used at that time. This is one of the areas of the museum that we were fortunate enough to find original furnishings dating back to the 1902 period. Also, a cabinet meeting table that was used in this version of the building and um, a, a very gorgeous um, file cabinet that has notations on it from 1902 uh, that was in the stenographer's office. On the opposite end of the historic State Capitol Museum, Florida's judicial branch is represented in the preserved Supreme Court room with six seats for the Supreme Court justices. This is the original bench used in um, the 1902 Capitol as well as uh, original lawyers tables and as you said there are six seats and for an appellate court that's not right. You need to have um, an odd number in order to um, come to a decision. So we sometimes have very astute young uh, Florida school children who call our attention to that and ask why that is. And it was because at the time that this courtroom was created, there was an overwhelming caseload. So they divided the court into two courts of three judges each, and then they would convene together to read their decisions. In 1902, the legislative branch also convened in the Florida Capitol building. While sitting in the historic congressional seats, modern school kids can use current technology 
technology to learn how state government works. We have a mock session program here. Each desk has actually a remote that allows kids to to vote on one of three issues that they then uh, debate on. Um, one is the Florida Barge Canal, which was a 1961 issue, the Equal Rights Amendment from 1982, and Equal Opportunity Scholarships from 1999. And they get to hear on display screens here in the room arguments from Representative Pro and Con, and then they get to actually stand up and make their own arguments in favor or against um, the the bills or amendments to those bills, and then they get to compare how their class vote, their classes vote compared with the actual vote that happened in the House chamber. Michelle Gammon Purvis gave us a tour of the Florida Historic Capitol Museum in Tallahassee. We also spoke with former Secretary of State Bruce Mathers, who was instrumental in saving the historic capital from being demolished. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Crawl out through the fallout, baby. When they drop that bomb Crawl out through the fallout With the greatest of aplomb When your white count's getting higher Hurry, don't delay I'll hold you close and kiss those Radiation burns away Crawl out through the fallout, baby To my loving arms through the rain of strontium 90 Think about your hero When you're at ground zero And crawl out through the fallout back to me The threat from nuclear weapons is still a serious issue today. As Janie Gould reports, in the post-World War II Cold War era, some Florida cities developed strategies for dealing with a nuclear attack. During the height of the Cold War, communities all over the country made disaster plans. Florida had several likely targets for Soviet missile attacks, Patrick Air Force Base, Cape Canaveral, and Miami among them. Nobody expected Vero, Fort Pierce, or Stewart to take direct hits from nuclear bombs, but the region could have attracted panicky refugees. In Indian River County, officials picked a remote research facility on Oslo Road as the place where those people would have been washed down and screened for radiation levels. Roy Howard was assistant to the county engineer at the time. Realistically, we know that there would be a good number that would die, and we would have to take care of burying them. So the county uh, engineer's responsibility and the county road and bridge department would have a bulldozer or several, maybe even drag lines, that would be located at the entomological research lab. And this would be for mass burials, if oh, it yeah. came to that? Yeah. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Was this plan put to pen and paper? I mean, it was oh, absolutely. A, I was the one that did it. It's a pretty good thick notebook. If, let's say, Miami had been attacked and thousands of people from Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach had headed this way, what would the highway situation have been like? There was no turnpike or interstate at the time. Well, it would be jam-packed, and uh, a lot of the people who were radiated by the fallout probably wouldn't survive to make it here if they came from as far away as Fort Lauderdale. The county's plan involved law enforcement and the military because of the great potential for civil unrest. We knew that once you have that many people coming, there would be problems. 
Folks have been talking about fallout shelters, too. Roy Howard remembers seminars about them at Vero Beach High School. Did the county build a fallout shelter for uh, officials or something? Or? No, but we knew where some places were that were usable. Did you have them supplied with water and no, food? No, <laughs> Didn't go that far? No. We had plans on supplying things to those places, though, if we had uh, any idea that anything was going to happen. Did you have one in your yard, in your backyard, a bomb shelter? No, but I sure gave it a thought. I had more of a positive feeling about things. I felt like it really wasn't going to happen. Do you remember mass hysteria in the community or? No, no. Fear? No. There were a few people, you know, that got really upset, and everybody else tried to calm them down, you know, and said, we're going to be okay. But as a high school student in the 1950s, Howard witnessed some of the early and often unsuccessful rocket launches from Cape Canaveral. They were just squirrely in the air, and we saw them blow up. So we knew things were possible, but uh, I don't think anybody ever got overly excited. If radiation had blown toward Indian River County and residents needed to evacuate, they would have had one way out, State Road 60. The highway had just two lanes, deep canals on both sides, and numerous wooden bridges. Howard wrote a plan that had residents evacuating to the west. Was there a designated area out there? No. Nothing? Uh, Just listen to your radio, watch your TVs, take uh, food and clothing with you. and We had a list of stuff that they could take with them to uh, survive, and they would have to survive. For how long? Mm, For about seven or eight days. Kind of like hurricane planning. Pretty much, yeah. Now then, today, that evacuation plan would be pretty obsolete with the kinds of bombs that we have today. In other words, forget evacuating if it should happen today. Yeah, hopefully you still got your fallout shelters. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. Crawl out through the fallout, baby. You know what I mean. Crawl out through the fallout Cause they said this bomb was clean If you cannot find the way Just listen for my song I'll love you all your life Although that may not be too long Crawl out through the fallout, baby To my loving arms While those ICBMs keep us free When you hear me call out Baby, kick the wall out And crawl out through the fallout Back to me Cause you'll be the only girl in the world Why don't you crawl out through the fallout Back to me Why don't you crawl out through the fallout Back to me you crawl up to the fallout back to me. This is Florida Frontiers. Artist and naturalist John James Audubon died nearly half a century before the establishment of the powerful national organization that bears his name. Today, his life and work is still celebrated, not just for his incomparable bird illustrations, but for the way in which he influenced how we look at nature itself. Bill Dudley has this report. Then one day it occurred to me that what I really wanted to do in my life was to make art out of bird illustration, to portray for America, to give America a monument 
to the glories of nature. The words of John James Audubon is performed by actor-scholar George Frine, a retired philosophy professor who was in Florida recently for a series of Chautauqua-style performances. Born in Haiti in 1785, John Audubon grew up in France, emigrating to this country in 1803 to manage an estate his father had bought. A handsome and personable young man, Audubon reveled in life in the new country. He was fascinated by nature and birds in particular, sketching and painting them at every opportunity. And I had not a care in the world. Hunting, fishing, music, dancing and drawing was my whole life. I loved it. I loved to follow the birds through the woods. Felt like I was flying with them. These creatures of such melodious beauty. A few years later, John Audubon and his young wife were running a trading post in Kentucky, where he adopted the dress and lifestyle of the frontier. One day, he saw a book by naturalist Alexander Wilson with pictures of North American birds. Believing he could do better, Audubon began to form a vision of his life's work. And decided that he would try to make a living, support his family, by doing what was really his avocation and his love, painting all the birds of America, and that he would paint them life-size. He would put one bird on each page. He began to travel, first throughout the South, collecting specimens by trapping and shooting. In contrast to his contemporaries, whose pictures looked stiff and clinical, Audubon painted his birds in lifelike positions in natural settings. He tried initially to draw from life, but he couldn't. Of course, the birds wouldn't sit still, and he was critical of ornithologists who portrayed birds as though they sat for four or five hours for this portrait. He said they're alive and moving and need to be portrayed that way. In the late 1820s, he traveled to England, where he published, in installments over the next decade, a lavish, oversized book, Birds of America, eventually documenting over 700 birds. Audubon became an international celebrity, despite the fact that his book, with its hand-colored plates, was so expensive, only universities, governments, and the wealthy could afford to buy it. He came to Florida in the winter of 1831, visiting St. Augustine, then the Everglades, and the Keys. Today, a century and a half after his death, Audubon's work remains a benchmark for wildlife artists as well as ornithologists. But did his life and art signal the start of a change in the way we look at the natural world? If you want to look at a picture of, of a landscape, if you want to look at the picture of, um, of, a, of a woodland area in, in which a bird belongs, then Audubon is the guy. According to Central Florida Community College professor of history, Ron Cooper, birds have traditionally been seen as objects of beauty, appearing in mythology and religion, even as national symbols on coins and flags. So that shows a certain admiration for birds. On the other hand, it removes birds from their environment. They aren't seen as natural creatures. But by depicting his birds in various activities in their natural habitats for the first time, Audubon made his subjects part of an overall ecosystem. Artists show us something about the world we may not have otherwise seen, but if we really want to see some kind of environmental integration, in which we have a member of a species depicted not only because of its particular characteristics, but depicted as a member of a biotic community, then he's the guy who really did it well. And once we see that that's the way we should look at, at birds, perhaps, then maybe we'll see everything else. Maybe it can rub off a little bit on us, and we'll begin to think of humans just as members of biotic communities and, and not something standing over and above 
and environmental sort of background. John James Audubon died in 1851. The first of many Audubon societies was formed in 1886, partly to address concerns that many birds were being hunted to extinction, something Audubon noticed even in his time. He wrote to an English friend that he should come to America to see it before it was transformed, while it was still a glorious wilderness continent. He knew that decline in wild nature was inevitable and uh, he could measure it a little bit beginning in his lifetime. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.